morning. If you don't know me, I'm Eric Huffman. I'm the um, lead pastor here at The Story. And I'm going to share a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of a message that's going to be about 30 minutes or so that's going to be um, uh, aimed at addressing our anxiety issues. So this is a series, it's a three-part series um, called um, Beautifully Broken. And we're kind of taking a deep dive in, in looking at some of the struggles that we have with toxic thinking. Last week, we talked about depression. This week, we're talking about anxiety. And next week, we'll, we'll talk about shame. So a real pick-me-up to start the year. I'm <laughs> just kidding. So, but it is something that we all struggle with, these kinds of toxic patterns of thought. Um, even if we don't want to admit it, we're deep in it more often than we care to, to acknowledge. And so um, that's where we're going today. You've got study guides, and you can use those um, for the scriptures and uh, questions that come up a little later. I came across this article. um, It was an op-ed in the New York Times at the end of 2019, and it was by uh, Nicholas Kristof, who's a pretty uh, popular, well-known columnist. And he wrote this at the end of 2019, basically saying that there's never been a better year in human history than we had in 2019. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty amazing statement, but he backed it up with data, right? So he was um, kind of picking at stats that, that reflected what a great year 2019 was, and, you know, like quality of life stats and uh, longevity, like uh, life expectancy and things like, you know, literacy and poverty levels, all headed in the right direction in, um, in 2019. This was kind of the money quote from the, from the piece. He said, in 2019, or 2019 was probably the year in which children were least likely to die, adults were least likely to be illiterate, and people were least likely to suffer excruciating and disfiguring diseases. And then he shared stats like these. He said, every day in 2019, every day in 2019, 325,000 people gained access to electricity. Every day in 2019, 200,000 people received fresh water in their home for the first time. Every day in 2019, 650,000 people accessed the internet for the first time. It's pretty amazing. And I was fascinated not just by the, by the op-ed, but I was fascinated by the response because this thing went viral. This thing was everywhere. And not everybody that was sharing it was happy about it. There were some people that shared it like, yay, look at us, go humanity, and what a great life. And, but most people that shared this piece on Twitter, for example, were really upset about it. They were really upset at the audacity of this New York Times columnist to say that things are actually getting better because they expect People like New York Times columnists to tell them it's getting worse, right? And so they've got this sort of preconception, this preconditioned worldview that tells them that everything's bad. And so whenever somebody comes along and says, hey, it's not that bad, it's, it's a jolt to the system and there's a rejection of that, right? So I came across, I went looking for tweets that sort of reflected that, because I remembered seeing them. I went back this week and found some people that were really upset about um, Christoph's piece, and, and, and this is the kind of thing I came across. The first one, keep in mind, this man is responding to a, a column that said, look, we're living longer, we're healthier, fewer diseases, more people have food, less poverty, more water, all this stuff. And this guy, this is, this is his takeaway. He said, the only intrinsic good there is water, as long as that lasts. <laughs> Can you imagine living with that outlook? I bet he is a blast at parties, right? It's just, ugh. 
But it was, there was more. This, this other man said, I'm canceling my subscription, New York Times. How anyone can see good in this mess is beyond me, right? And there's another one. This is my favorite one. This woman said, also, the last night on the Titanic was the best because they opened the bar and brought the orchestra back. <laughs> that was her takeaway. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Now, I couldn't help but just be enthralled by this, um, by this response because it, it just didn't seem to add up. Why are so many people so deeply disturbed at so many good things happening in the world? The response was almost religious in nature. It was almost like they were being told their God isn't real. And that vitriolic response is what happens when somebody tells you your whole worldview is built on a lie. And I think some of us have a worldview that's built on this sort of negative, pessimistic outlook that's based on three premises, really. The first premise is, the first premise is um, that the world's just really, really bad. The second one is it's getting worse all the time. And the third one is you should be very, very afraid. And I was upset by the, by the op-ed too, but I was upset for different reasons. I wasn't upset, you know, like other people were. I was upset because it seems to me that for the entirety of the rest of the year, um, the New York Times and, and other similar outlets, right, news outlets are doing everything in their power to whip us into a frenzy, right, to, with misleading headlines or kind of sensationalist stories that sometimes aren't even true or based in fact, right, they have to walk them back. That happens more and more often now, right? And, and, and so they spend the whole year telling us to be afraid, and to hate people who aren't like us and, you know, to just be anxious. And then suddenly at the end of the year, the New York Times drops this on us. Like, hey, guys, it's really all good. Like, we're going to be fine. Everyone should be happy living in the world we're living in. And it just, to me, it felt wrong. It, it felt like, hey, that, that doesn't add up with your usual narrative, which is so fear-driven. So why, if Christoph's premise is correct, that the world actually is getting better, if that's true, then why don't we hear about it in the daily news cycle? Well, we know the reason. It's because nothing sells like fear. Nothing gets clicks like anxiety. And don't hear me saying, I'm not being that, you know, get off my lawn guy that's like, the media is evil, blah, 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 whatever. That's not even the point. The point is, the media wouldn't be feeding us something we didn't want to eat. So it's a heart thing, right? That, that, that um, insatiable desire for, for this fear, this anxiety to be gripped by it. We're the ones who are consuming it. We have an anxiety problem. And I think we're living, it's true that we're living in this um, age of, uh, of an anxiety epidemic. Now, I first heard that in the media, so are they trying to scare us? Is it true? I don't know. I'm scared. I'm paying attention. Whatever. So I do believe the stats that more of us than ever are, are dealing with anxiety openly, right? So one in five people say that they are dealing with heavy, heavy anxiety, deeply distressing, crippling anxiety on a regular basis. That's one in five of us. You can do the math. Look around. Another two in five of us admit that we're struggling with moderate depression. Like most of the time, we have some level of unmanageable depression or, or anxiety going on in our lives. We're just worried about this stuff that's outside of our control. And then there's another two out of five of us that are just like, I'm fine, watching the game, whatever. Like that's just, however, that other two out of five, they're anxious too. They just don't know it or they don't want to admit it. 
That's a lot of us. That's probably where I am. That's probably where a lot of guys in the room are with anxiety. Now, what's interesting when you think about all these numbers is that we're living in the greatest time ever, according to Christoph and many other people that would say the same. I don't want to trade places with anybody in any other year. The 90s were pretty cool. But other than that, I don't know. It's pretty great. We're living in the greatest, most prosperous nation on earth. We're living in the greatest state within said nation. We're living in the greatest city within said state. We've got it all. But we're not any less anxious, are we? It's not like our anxiety's fixed. In fact, many studies suggest that we're more anxious in the West, in Western civilization, where there is more prosperity. And we often think about, about anxiety as though it's circumstantial. And if our circumstances improve, then so will our anxiety problem. And that never happens, does it? The more you get, the more you worry. That's been my experience, me personally. And look, this is harder for me to talk about than depression was last week. I told you I've suffered with depression for most of my adult life in some level, some form or fashion. And standing up here admitting to anxiety is for some reason harder. I can't, I don't know, there's some shame going on there with men and anxiety that we need to talk about. I'll get there in a second. But uh, that's the case with me. I, you know, um, the example I thought of was like for three and a half years, our first three and a half years in Houston, Gio and the kids and I, we lived in um, like townhome kind of apartment places with no yard. And we got two dogs and we always were like pining for a yard. Oh, if we only had a yard, if we had a yard for these dogs, our lives would change. Everything would get better. We'd be less stressed. We could send them outside, blah, blah, blah. As of April, we have a yard. How do you think that's gone? <laughs> you know. Now, all I can think about is how those Blank dogs are messing up my yard. You know what I mean? Get off my yard. You know, it's like, ah, I just said I'm not that guy, and here I am. Get off my yard. All right, so that's the way it works. If you're stressed out and anxious with a little bit, you're going to be more stressed out and more anxious with a lot. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that your circumstances will determine your level of anxiety. Um, that's not how it works at all. No. I don't go around telling people that I'm anxious. And most men don't even know that it's anxiety we're experiencing. And I'm going to overgeneralize. Y'all are going to have to forgive me, but we have to have a way of talking about this. Because men and women typically experience anxiety much differently. And men catch a lot of flack for not expressing our feelings. And it's not that we're holding back. We just have no idea what we're going through and how to get it from our hearts or our minds to our mouths because we're not conditioned to live that way, right? I've got a lot going on right now. I've got a lot of anxiety in my life. I have every excuse to be anxious and I have had a very anxious couple of weeks. Tomorrow, I leave for the Holy Land. I'm leading a group of 65 people from the story to the Holy Land. I'm responsible for these people. I don't know if you've heard, there have been some recent events in that region. And I've been having a lot of sleepless nights. Like, do we go? Do we not? It's stressful. We're going. It's going to be fine. We're going. Full speed ahead. Um, but it's stressful. Gio and I uh, recently made a will. Now, um, these are two separate events. So I don't want y'all to think we made a will. <laughs> um, so... There's 65 people here who are like, wait, what? <laughs> what do you know? Like, 
I promise, two separate events, okay? So <laughs> making a will is a very, you know, stressful thing. It's, it's distressing to look your own mortality in the face, right? Like, it's a stressful thing to think about our kids without us. Like, we love our families, but who do you trust? Like, the people we would trust with our kids are not the people we would trust with our money. <laughs> and vice versa. It's like, oh, my gosh, they're going to have to talk to each other. They're going to have to communicate. They're going to have to ask them for money. You know, it's like, oh, too much, like, too much anxiety. I've got that going on. Uh, yesterday I had a, a house full of 10-year-old boys, eight 10-year-old boys at my house for three hours. And um, I'm still recovering. Yeah, I'm still shaky. I need a fence now. They broke my fence. So if anyone knows <laughs> a good, uh, you know, privacy fence guy, that, that thing's gone. So uh, y'all can hook me up. But um, that, was, uh, that was pretty anxious times as well. Now, do you think I went to bed last night and, and said to my wife, honey, I'm feeling really anxious about our fence and our mortality and um, events in the Middle East? <laughs> of course not. I didn't. You know what I did? With my anxiety, I did what I'm really good at doing and what most men in the room probably are really good at doing. I took it all and I went into a room by myself and I reached inside myself into my heart and I unscrewed this mason jar labeled Eric's Fears and Tears and I just shoved it all in there and I screwed it up real tight, dried off my face and went back out into the house and pretended like I have it all together. Because I have this feeling inside of me that the people who depend on me need me to be a rock. That if I express what's really going on in my deepest thoughts, they're going to lose it. Like they're going to freak out. They need me to be strong. And look, I think oftentimes we go, well, that's just wrong. And men should get over it and be vulnerable. Okay, yes, but there's also a shred of truth to it. And that the way our families and our relationships often work does require some of us, not just men, but some of us to just seal that stuff down until an appropriate time <laughs> and compartmentalize. And the capacity, the storage capacity in my mason jar would just shock some of you. The stuff I can fit down there is just amazing, right? But we got to deal with it. And, and that's because I, I deal with that that way. I think a lot of men deal with it that way because we have been conditioned to do that. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong about that, guys. I, I was reminded about why we've been conditioned to do that. There are some social goods to doing that. Right? I was reminded because uh, I saw a movie this week called 1917. It's about World War I. Really helped with my anxiety problem. It was a, <laughs> it's a great movie. Um, but it reminded me that there have been many times in history when um, men in this case, but I know women in, in other cases as well, men had to just go woof, and get the job done, right? So there's this lead character, a young man, uh, and his closest friend dies. Spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't seen it. His closest friend dies. And then there's this older officer who kind of takes him by the arm and says, I'm sorry about your friend, but listen, in my experience, it's best not to dwell on these things. And what he meant was, if you want to stay alive in this war, you better keep your eyes open. Now is not the time. Seal it. So guys, and whoever else in the room deals with anxiety that way, you need to know what it is you're sealing up. You need to know that it's there. It doesn't go away when you shut that jar. And you need to figure out a way of dealing with that in an appropriate way and an appropriate time. Otherwise, you'll ignore it, 
And then one day, the seal on that mason jar will bust and you'll have all kinds of problems in your own heart and in your relationships, all right? So we need to talk about this. We need to talk about anxiety and what the Bible says about anxiety. Let's, let's talk about a definition first of anxiety. There's no clean definition for anxiety um, like I came up with last week for depression, um, but uh, th- there are sort of different ideas out there, and I just kind of generalized here. Generally speaking, anxiety is an existential warning sign that manifests itself as a sense of distress we feel in our bodies that tells us something is wrong or off. So here, you can see in this description, anxiety is not inherently bad. There's a survival mechanism to anxiety itself that can be good, all right? So anxiety, um, there's your definition. What does the Bible say about this um, phenomenon of anxiety, this experience we have with um, a pattern of worry? Well, if I asked you before now, if I just surveyed the congregation, and if you have any experience with Christianity or the Bible at all, the first thought is that I should not worry. The Bible's only response to worry is to say, don't do that anymore. Stop worrying. Don't you have any faith? Just believe better, right? And so people who struggle with anxiety often have a hard time at churches where people wear those t-shirts or say those things. Don't worry. Worry is a sin. Worry is a lack of faith. Don't be anxious. Just buck up. Believe better. Have more faith. Stop worrying. What happens then is you come to church carrying all this anxiety, right? All these things you're anxious about, all this stuff, you bring it in with you, and then you have a service where a guy stands up in a place like this, a guy like me, and tells you that worry is a sin, That worry means you don't trust God. That worry means you might not be a Christian, right? And and then people with anxiety who brought all this stuff with them to church, they leave with all that stuff and the added anxiety of maybe going to hell when they die. It's like, oh my gosh, it's more to worry about, you know? So we have to get our thoughts straight straight around this. And there are reasons why people think that about the Bible and worry. The Bible does say don't worry. Like in passages like Proverbs 12, 25, where it says anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Don't let anxiety weigh you down, the Bible says. Or in um, Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. (laughs) But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. For people who struggle with anxiety, I would imagine this is your least favorite Bible verse. And Leviticus is in the Bible. And so don't be anxious about anything. How? Like the worst thing to tell somebody who's worried is don't worry, it's fine. I promise, just relax. (laughs) Never ever tell someone who's anxious, just relax. You know, get over it, it's fine, don't worry. No, that's the worst thing. It, It exacerbates and multiplies the problem. Now, the Bible does warn against worry, but that's not all the Bible says about worry and anxiety. And so, if you're tripped up on an issue like this, biblically speaking, you must learn the discipline of going straight to Jesus himself first. Biblically speaking, like go to Jesus, see what Jesus says about this subject you're hung up on, and then interpret everything else the Bible says on the subject through the lens and the filter of Jesus himself and his words. Because Jesus also warns against worrying, but that's not all he says on the matter. He has more to say, and we should listen. 
This passage I'm going to focus on today is uh, Matthew 6. Uh, it's in your study guides and obviously in your Bibles. If you're a straight-A student and brought your own Bible, thank you. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, um, and we're going to start in verse 25, okay? This is in your study guides on the back if you want to follow along or on the screen. All right, this is Jesus preaching. He says, therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Who among you, by worrying, can add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work, and they don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, won't God do much more for you, you people of weak faith? Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, stop worrying about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, there's a couple things going on in this passage I want us to unpack before we're done. The first thing is, Jesus does say don't worry, right? It's right there. He says it. Don't worry. But that's not all he says. Thankfully, he unpacks it a little further. And if you listen closely, you'll hear it. The specific prescriptions Jesus gives, the warnings he gives about worrying, they all have to do with the future tense. I think that's interesting. Don't worry about what you will eat don't worry about what you will wear. Don't worry about tomorrow. I think what Jesus is getting at in this passage on worrying is that there's a difference between sort of irrational fear and anxiety about things you cannot control or change or affect by your worrying and reasonable concern, right? So Jesus is actually graciously giving us an out here. He's like, not just saying, hey, stop it. Don't be anxious, which just makes you more anxious, right? Oh my gosh, he's on to me. Like, he, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the stuff you can't change. And then he says, today has enough troubles. He's almost like, hey, if you're going to worry, worry about what's right in front of you. Be concerned about what you can change, about what you can affect, right? Be concerned about what matters. This is what's right here today. This is enough for today. And so Jesus doesn't just say, hey, bad, don't worry, stop it. Jesus says, tell me what you're worried about and why. Which is a beautiful thing. So for some of us, some of us really need to know that there's such a thing of reasonable concern because some of you have taken this whole don't worry thing to its extreme. And, and, and you're just like procrastinating. You're never going to the doctor, even though there's that thing on your back that everybody's worried about. And you're just like, nah, Jesus said, don't worry. It's like, okay, wait. <laughs> you should go get that checked out, all right? 
Uh, if your dad died of colon cancer and uh, you know it's in your family and you're over 40, you need to go get that checked out, all right? And if your mom was an alcoholic and you feel like you need a drink every day after work, you need to be proactive. If you're a student getting overwhelmed, you're finding yourself, you know, just being completely buried by your anxiety, you need to talk to somebody about that. There's a, such a thing as reasonable concern that inspires us or compels us to act and to get it, uh, you know, taken care of, um, and, and the kind of thing that is really toxic. Now, the reason that we know that it's not always a sin to worry, and if you struggle with anxiety, you need to know that it's not a sin necessarily to be anxious, is because Jesus was perfect and anxious. And I shared the passage last week, I didn't want to reread it again, but it's from that story in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When Jesus knows they're coming to arrest him. And he demonstrates all the clearest signs of anxiety. He struggles deeply with anxiety. He does what a lot of guys do when, when that mason jar is full, right? He's like, he tells his boys, y'all wait over here. I'm going to go over there. I'm, I'll be all right. Just, just wait for me. No don't, come, no, don't come with me. Just wait over there. And then he goes off by himself, opens that jar up, and he weeps. Jesus' fears and tears, right? He's just, and then he weeps, and he pours it all out before God, and he knows what's coming, and he's just wrecked with fear and anxiety about today, about what's happening right now. And he takes it straight to the Father, and then he ends his prayer. After pouring it all out there, he ends his prayer with, not my will, though, but yours be done. And if you are, have been just wrecked by anxiety, you need to know Jesus has something to say about it. It's not just like you're over there with your anxiety and Jesus is over there with his perfection. He was anxious too. And if he was, then it means it's not necessarily a sin. He'll meet you where you are in it and you can follow his example by being honest about your feelings with God at least with your father in heaven if not with those around you like go straight to the father and let your prayer echo his okay God I'm anxious I'm concerned I don't know I wish I had a way out of this but not my will but yours be done my father I trust you Martin Luther was this uh, just theological giant you know he was this 16th century reformer, we, we owe a lot of what we know about the church to Martin Luther, just this Christian hero, but when you read his biographies or when you see movies about him, or whatever, you'll probably notice that he wasn't altogether like strong and self-sufficient. He was just completely destroyed in his early adulthood with anxiety, like really, like by himself, weeping, literally beating himself up over his sin and shortcomings, all that he was not. Martin Luther knew what it was like to experience anxiety. This is what he wrote about that season of his life. He said, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter, and I made of him the jailer and hangman of my soul. This is the tragedy of our human condition, that we fall so far we can no longer see or hear the true God. And we imagine the condemning God is the only God. And then the God we imagine becomes the God we get. That's what it feels like. If you don't know what it's like living with deep anxiety, that's what it feels like. One woman who struggles with anxiety that's much deeper than mine. And if I'm, if I'm not doing your anxiety justice with this sermon today, just please be gracious with me. I'm, I, I ask you that. I don't know what it's like to struggle with really, really deep anxiety. This woman was like, it feels, Eric, it feels like every step I take is uncertain, unsteady, shaky. I don't know if I'm gonna land on solid footing every single step. So 
Martin Luther knew what that was like. I think Jesus knew what that was like. But for Martin Luther, this wasn't the end of his story, thankfully. Thank God, he continued to write. And this is what he wrote. He said, but in the one who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God joins with those whom darkness has swallowed. In doing so, Christ unheld hell. So there is no place any one of us could ever end up, no depth to which we might ever sink, that, there even is, that, that even there he is the Lord with us. Even there he says, come with me. Even there. It doesn't matter how deep in it you are or how bad it's gotten. Jesus will come wherever you are and invite you out. I can't say for sure whether the world is getting better or worse. I could make a case probably either way. But I do know this. The anxiety we experience is not circumstantial. It is spiritual. And if you had more of whatever you think it is you want or you need, your anxiety levels would not change. If anything, they would increase. Because this is a spiritual matter for most of us. About 5% of us who struggle with anxiety have some kind of real massive disorder and you need to seek some help for that. I get it. Most of us, our struggle is spiritual. It's about our desire. Jesus nailed it in what he said. He said, where's your desire? Is it in the things of this world or is it in God himself? If it's anything other than God, you're going to be disappointed and perpetually anxious no matter how much of that stuff of this world you get because their promises cannot come true. Only the promise of God is worth your investment of time and faith. Listen, I held back a little bit earlier when I told you about the stuff I was anxious about this week. The number one stressor in my life this week was not the Holy Land or the fence or whatever it was. was walking a man to death's door. It's kind of one of the weirdest things about my job, right? It's a very weird job, but you walk with someone you love and care about and you know, we knew for the last week or so that, that this was going to end soon and I really love this man about a few months ago, he sat right over there at the end of the service, and you might have noticed him if this is your service. He came to the 11 o'clock a lot with his wife and, and two boys, and his name's Mark, but he always had the oxygen with him and the tube in his nose, and um, he struggled with lung cancer and sat over there right after a service, and we prayed together. He was a lifelong skeptic, and he prayed right over there with me, and he accepted Jesus, made Jesus the Lord of his life, and, and he believed it in all of his heart. Oh, from that point, three months ago, it was like uh, he couldn't get enough of it. He would text me like about worship or the sermon or his favorite song. If he couldn't get here, he was watching online, right? He was just couldn't get enough. His favorite song was, I am who you say I am. I'm a child of God. And they played it yesterday in his ear as he breathed his last breaths. Over the last week or so, Mark would text me about what he's feeling, and he was really concerned about his fear and anxiety that he was experiencing as he was nearing death's door. He was really conscientious about it, and he wanted to know if his anxiety meant he really wasn't a Christian after all. And I walked him through some of this stuff that we've talked about today, and I assured him, Mark, you can be Christian and anxious. How do we know? Jesus was too. And there is no hell deep enough 
There is no anxiety far enough away from God that he won't come and find you. This is who God really is. This is how he sees us in our worry and our anxiety. This is Jesus in whom we place our trust. If you struggle with anxiety of any form, I pray you find some comfort and confidence in knowing this is who God really is. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we thank you for who you really are. We repent from making you somebody else in our own minds or in our churches. You're not here to pile on when we're anxious. You're not here to judge or condemn. You're here to embrace and to lead the way if we will just surrender to who you really are. Thank you for all of the ways your goodness has been made known to us from a blessing of a trip to the Holy Land for 65 of us this week to a blessing of knowing that Mark rests with no pain, only peace in your arms right now. To the blessing of baptizing a young one today, all your goodness, Lord. We thank you for never giving up on us and never forgetting about us. I pray for those who are struggling mightily right now, overwhelmed by anxiety, Lord. May they place all their desires in you and nothing else, nothing short of that. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.